1: from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, the museum brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. We're joined today by Buzz Carpenter, a retired U.S. Air Force colonel who spent his career flying some of the most spectacular aircraft ever designed. After graduating from the U.S. Air Force Academy, he flew in a number of different airframes, including as an F-4E fighter squadron commander, and before that, an RF-4C in Vietnam combat. He also flew the SR-71, flying worldwide as an aircraft commander and later instructor pilot, with over 60-plus operational missions, occurring 777 hours. He retired as a colonel after serving as a second Air Force vice commander, the second Air Force responsible for all the USA Air Force intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance flying assets. He is currently a docent at the National Air and Space Museum Udvar-Hazy Center out by Dulles Airport, which, if you haven't been there, is one of the most amazing museums in the world. Uh, Anytime you come to D.C. after you've come to the Spy Museum, you've got to go out by Dulles to see Uh, the Udvar-Hazy Center. It doesn't just have an SR-71. It has the Space Shuttle Discovery, the Enola Gay, the Concorde, several other amazing, amazing aircraft. That's one of by far my favorite museums and all of of the ones I've been to. Uh, So, Buzz, thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at the museum.
0: I am glad to be here today, and I would have to echo, too, that (laughs) I think the uh, Smithsonian Air and Space Udvar-Hazy Center at Dulles is truly a remarkable museum.
1: So when I, when I was growing up, I was a bit of an uh, aircraft and space nerd. Uh, I must have watched the right stuff when it came out on VHS every day when I was about 10, 12 or 13 years old. Uh, I had three favorite aircraft, and you've actually flown two of them. Uh, if you had at one point had been an A-10 pilot, we would have had the nerd trifecta. But the F-4 and the SR-71 are two of the most remarkable airframes ever put into the field. Uh, and you flew during Vietnam... Uh, an RF-4C, and for those that don't know what that means, this is a a modified F-4 designed for intelligence purposes. Can you talk a little bit about what the mission was during Vietnam and and what you were asked to do on a day-to-day basis?
0: I was lucky enough. I flew out of uh, South Vietnam, out of Tonsonut, Saigon, and then later out of northern Udorn at uh, the air base we had up there. A typical RF-4 mission was normally two to four hours, depending on uh, if you had a refueling. It was photo reconnaissance. It could be photo reconnaissance that would be taking place at a couple hundred feet uh, along uh, trails where uh, munitions and people were being moved. It could be a reconnaissance at intermediate altitudes that they were doing, looking for more area cover type of. Uh, uh, work uh, five to 8,000 feet, and occasionally we were up at uh, 25,000 uh, feet doing collections there. We we had a limited radar capability, so we could go up to Haiphong and kind of do a uh, survey of, of who was in port, but it was more blobology. The uh, photo and Analysts would look at the radar uh, imagery and go, well, I think that's an oil <laughs> tanker or I think it may be a, a ship, but it, was, uh, it wasn't too advanced uh, per se. We also had an infrared capability, so we could fly at night and do uh, typically flying around 2,500 feet and do uh, typically area covers, flying back and forth and being able to pick up... Uh, lights or hot spots that uh, then intelligence could then correlate to maps to try to figure out what might have been there. The uh, RF-4s were also the only ones that that carried the Loran. So during bad weather situations, when bombing uh, of, of key targets was important, sometimes we'd take off, we'd go up, and we had all the data sheets from all the different fighters that were in the theater, and the fighters would typically join us, typically two to four, and they'd tell us what kind of weapons they had on board. We would lead them to where the Loran said the target was, and we'd give them the countdown <laughs> that uh, this is the time to uh, pickle your weapons because even though we can't see it, right. uh, it's down there. Um, one of the more exciting missions we did, well, exciting one of them was the uh, post strike. The fighters would go into the north. And then we would typically show up 20 to 30 minutes afterwards when the dust had settled to take pictures. And and they knew we were coming.
1: There's no surprise anymore at that point. There
0: was no surprise. (laughs) And when I came into the theater, the RF4 guys had one of the highest loss rates of, uh, of any of the systems because they knew we were coming. If it was a morning go, at least there might be an afternoon go that would come back in to hope for a rescue. If you were in an afternoon go... You probably figured you had to spend the
1: night, the night per se. Um, I mean, The RF-4 is a beautiful airplane, but it's not stealthy by any means. It's, it's fast, but it doesn't maneuver particularly well. You know, some of the smaller, certainly the MiG fighters were better at maneuver than the F-4. So it's not like you could sneak up on anybody.
0: We could not. But we had one interesting capability for nights is we carried photo carts, and they were about one million candle power. And I think we could carry like 48 of them. Uh, So you could fly over a target at night, and when you hit the camera, the first thing that came out was a photo cart, and there was a a sensor on the bottom of the airplane that realized when the maximum candle power it hit, it would trigger the the camera at that point.
1: (laughs) So it's It's like an airplane flash. Like an
0: airplane (laughs) flash. Uh, One particular night was the most uncomfortable one I ever had. I did the DMZ between North and South Vietnam which was a very heavily armed area and i had 40 some flashes in a row and i said you know when they see it coming along they can track the flashes to figure out where you are right. so what we did you'd light the afterburner you didn't care what the speed was <laughs> and uh, that was one good thing with an rf4 it was a very fast airplane right.
1: That's like the old adage that tracers work both ways. They work both
0: ways. That's exactly right. So we lit up the skies. Probably the most interesting mission, or one of the more interesting missions I ever did, was out of northern uh, Thailand. got called in, and they said, we have a special mission for you today. And I thought I was going to be heading north to Hanoi, but I was heading the other direction. The United Nations had asked the United States. There were two French archaeological teams in Angkor Wat. And the Kermer Rouge, were there was a hospital there, was a munitions dump. They wanted a complete area cover of Anchor Watt, hmm. and so we flew. It took us, as I recall, two days because it's huge right. at twenty five hundred feet. And I will always remember <laughs> seeing all these buildings that are still locked in the uh, jungle per right. se. Uh, remarkable. And then to turn
1: this film over to the United Nations is where it was going to go. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to ask you about the the reason we really wanted you to come in today, and we're so excited to have you. Is the SR-71? You know, you didn't build the thing, but you you now know as much about it as anyone. Um, And and so I want to ask you about this aircraft. Really, the first question is why the SR-71. I know that's open-ended, but why not the U-2? Why not satellites? Like, what what allows this airframe to have its own little niche? And in U.S. imagery intelligence history?
0: I'll turn the clock back a little bit. Uh, President Eisenhower gave the go-ahead for the U-2, the first really purely designed airplane of Kelly Johnson's for reconnaissance, or, or anybody. In the past, they'd modified airplanes to use them for reconnaissance. On the very first mission over Moscow on the 4th of July, 1956, the Russians saw it on radar, which we didn't expect. And you could see the surface-to-air two missiles being deployed around Moscow and industrial areas. And they pretty much assessed that that missile could reach up and knock the U-2 out. So when President Eisenhower in 1957 was appraised of this, he said, put together a study, tell me what I need to do. They came back and they said, the satellites aren't mature enough yet. We haven't been able to get it to work, cameras in space. And they said, this is what we've found. Instead of an airplane that flies at 450 miles an hour, we need one that flies at 2,100 miles an hour, Mach 3 plus. Instead of 70,000 feet, we need 85,000 feet and above. And the third thing, which was actually the most critical thing for Eisenhower, if you you go in and look at the notes, he wanted America's first stealthy airplane. Mm -hmm. He said Khrushchev will really be upset if he ever gets his hands on it and consider it an act of war. So I want an airplane that is virtually impossible to see on radar. Now, we didn't get an airplane impossible to see on radar, but for the 60s and 70s an airplane was created that was very difficult to see on radar and almost impossible uh, to intercept. And that's what went into production with your A-12, single seat, eventually decided they wanted two. I can't imagine flying the A-12 by myself, (laughs) running the cameras, the radios, It had a a more primitive navigation system, was just an inertial. So then you shift to the SR-71, you got two people, you share the responsibility, you carry 4,000 pounds of payload instead of 2,500 pounds, you have an astro-tracker that keeps telling you exactly where you were. We guaranteed the President 300 feet anywhere in the world, traveling at 2,200 miles an hour. Mm -hmm. It was amazing. And one of the amazing things, having come out of the RF-4, and those that generation of airplanes, your inertial would always be drifting. In the SR seventy one, it either worked or didn't work. You weren't in a gray area wondering, right. well, look, at, is it having trouble per se?
1: And it's not like you can use rivers and roads for well, navigation you, you, at ninety thousand feet and twenty one hundred miles. You can an hour.
0: a little bit, and the, and the uh, A twelve guys did because uh, we didn't have a view sight. Well, we had a view sight in the back. The navigator could update it if he felt he needed. In all my flights, over 200-some, we never updated. The the system was already on. And you had asked about RF-4s. We normally had 11 pilots that were qualified, combat-ready, to fly the SR at any given time. When I was there from 75 to 81, the vast majority of us came out of either RF-4s or F-4s because of the handling characteristics, the refueling experience, and things like that.
1: Well, and we, we can talk about refueling, and it's on my list at some point, but I think that's one of the more interesting aspects of this because, uh, what, a KC-135 or, or a refueling aircraft, they don't go particularly fast. I mean, I guess they're about commercial airliner speeds. That's exactly right. And I imagine from everything I've read that the SR-71, when it's performing at its best and when it's flying really, really fast, correct. it probably doesn't want to fly 400 miles an hour.
0: When we came in behind, the tanker was doing... Uh, typically 325 indicated, which is probably about 425, like you said. We were doing as slow as we wanted, even though lightweight. As we took on fuel, the tanker could now accelerate to its Q limit, the maximum pressure that the windows and everything Mm -hmm. else could withstand, which was 450. That wasn't a lot. Right. About a third of the time when we hit around seventy five thousand pounds out of the eighty thousand pounds we were going to take on board, you would have to light one of your afterburners mm-hmm. and typically, what you did, you lit your left into the afterburner, min burner, and then you used your inside throttle, your right throttle, to modulate. according to the uh, our directives originally set up in the program, they wanted you to drop off the tanker, light the afterburner, stabilize. Well, that was a wasted time. So as an instructor pilot, as I had been taught, and I taught my students, I want you to be able to light the burner and hold the position on the tanker without disconnecting. Because if you disconnect, there's always a chance you can't reconnect. Right. And, the, and the whole name of the game was to be at the end of the air refueling track with 80,000 pounds of fuel, and if it was a timed mission, at the right time. Depart the tanker. Say goodbye, initiate the afterburners again, and climb to altitude.
1: I, I, I to, you mentioned Kelly Johnson, and Kelly Johnson, for those who don't know, was kind of the the genius behind Lockheed Skunk Works. Uh, developed the U-2, the SR-71, and many other things. Uh, he has a very famous quote when it talks about the SR-71. He said, everything had to be invented. This was an air, aircraft that nothing was off the shelf. That If you want to talk about, I mean, in history of technology, talk about, evolutionary change versus revolutionary change the idea of small incremental steps versus a whole new everything and it seems like the sr-71 was i've read that they had to invent the machine tools to make the aircraft like there weren't even tools in existence to build the sr-71 can talk a little about why why engineering wise this was such a extraordinary new aircraft kelly
0: johnson who i had the the privilege and the and the joy to have some interfaces with a number of times. Um, When Eisenhower gave the the criteria for the advanced airplane, it became very quickly known that the standard use of aluminum would not work, it could not, because at the cruise speed of an SR-71, you're looking at over 600 degrees as an average. So he had to use titanium. Titanium had never been used in a large amount before. The CIA set up a frontal company in Europe. And for the uh, 32 SR-71s and the 13 A-12s and other black airplanes, uh, all the titanium came from Russia. They never knew who they sold it to. (laughs) The next step was to try to learn from the Russians through spying on how do you work with titanium. Because uh, we had not used titanium in a major way in the United States. When I have high school students, particularly... When I'm talking to him, I take out a slide rule. Because the SR-71 and the work on the Pratt & Whitney J-58 engine, computers weren't mature. Right. That was all done with slide rules. To show you how, I mean, titanium is an absolutely magnificent metal. But all the machines, like you said, had to be invented. And, and little quirks came up. Like, they would be rolling the titanium. Well, titanium has to be rolled hot. Because if you roll it cold, it just goes back to its original position when you heat it up. So they had to learn that. They couldn't figure out why in summertime at Burbank, the titanium seemed to become brittle and would crack on them. Well, it turns out that summertime, the city of Burbank puts extra chlorine in the water (laughs) for microbes and that. The chlorine was reacting with the titanium, so from that point on, all the curing of the titanium had to be done with distilled water to prevent the uh, the the cracking that they were that they were seeing on it.
1: Well, I, I feel that um, there's two interesting, maybe they're urban legends, but I'd certainly like to ask you about it. Uh, but but from what I've read, the landing gear had to be reinvented because. At such heat, normal rubber would just melt away.
0: It was a a special rubber that came from uh, BF Goodrich. The tire itself was coated with an aluminum, uh, I won't say dust, but an aluminum type of covering to help kind of reflect the heat away because it was not in a cooled area. It was in a protected area. It had a basket around it, and it was inflated to 425 PSI with nitrogen. Because if you put air in there, because of the heating, the oxygen part of the air would have gone into the rubber. So when you came back to land, you'd have flat tires right. on your main tires. Your nose uh, was a little more protected up in the, in the front. Um, so they had to uh, do some redesigning to accommodate for that, the, the main right. landing gear. And of the 12 airplanes we lost, of the SR-71s, four of them, were. it was either the primary cause or a significant secondary cause tire failure. Hmm. So we were very conscious about right. our tires.
1: Let me ask you about the fuel tanks because the the design here is one of those uh, that I use to discuss just thinking so far outside the box. Uh, this is not a normal engineering decision. This is let's build an aircraft where the fuel tanks leak when you when you fuel the plane on the ground. Can you talk a little bit about that engineering challenge and how it was overcome?
0: They had figured. Because of the heating, the aircraft was going to grow. It actually ended up growing about three to four inches in length, an inch or two in width because of the, of the heating. The average temperature of over 600 degrees. Because of that, you couldn't use rubber liners. So you got 10,000 gallons in the main fuselage and then another 1,000-plus in each wing uh, inboard of the, of the engines. Because you couldn't use rubber, what they tried to seal the tanks as best they could was silicone. Well, when they initially would do it, the silicone worked pretty well. You'd still have some minor leaks. But JP7, there's really no fire hazard because mm-hmm. normal fuel ignites at minus 40 below. JP7, you've got to get it above 335, and we used a chemical to start the engines, uh, triethylene boring. But as the airplane heats up on these two hour legs, as the tank went dry, the silicone would now be exposed to the heat, it would be becoming brittle. So every 100 hours, you had to open up all the tanks, strip out the old silicone, put new silicone in, and go on from there. My wife was around the airplane before I was, and as airplanes were approaching uh, 100 hours, sometimes the uh, maintenance personnel under the airplanes were wearing raincoats. (laughs) There'd be drip pans all around the airplane, no matter what, even a brand-new sealed airplane, there were normally some drip pans underneath it. Now, Lockheed told us, urban myth, that when we got to altitude, that the airplane would heat up and all the leaks would go away. We, as the ones who were flying it, said, no, there's just nobody up there to see, because there was no residue. So when you came back, you couldn't see streaks on the airplane that said, okay, yeah, I was dripping fuel from here or there. But tankers refueling us, I couldn't tell you how many times a a boomer laying on the on a couch in the back looks down and says, Boy, you're really spraying some fuel out of your <laughs> <laughs> out of a couple places.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that can't be uh, that can't make you feel good. I know I know intellectually, you know, JP seven doesn't ignite, but it can't be fun as a pilot to have fuel spewing out the back oh, yes. of your yeah. <laughs> aircraft. I I ran into a term that you may be able to to tell me whether it, it's real or not. What is Panther Piss? some additive to the fuel that allows it to stop from the un- what called the UNSTART problems?
0: Uh, there was nothing to stop the UNSTART problems. Okay. The UNSTART was an aerodynamic, uh, and it was the violent characteristics of the airplane. Uh, as time went on, the early pilots had a lot of them. By the time I came in the program, there was some automatic sequencing, so if one inlet had lost its shock... Because it's a, a, turb, a turbo ramjet, at speed about 80 some percent of your thrust is ram thrust. That means the air comes in at the four stage compressor, it then goes into six bypass tubes right directly into the afterburner. The core engine is 2,000 degrees, the afterburner is 32 to 3400 degrees, so it needed more air, and the engine couldn't absorb the air that was coming in at those, at those speeds. One engine would be producing 100% thrust, the other 20% thrust, and the airplane would start a violent, I mean violent, uh, slice in one direction or another, and sometimes it'd pitch up on you. As time went on, we had automated controls that if one, quote, unstarted, the other one would sympathetically go with it, which reduced, could still be as violent, but at least you had some control. As I was leaving the program in 1981, they were just about through testing the new digital system. When I talked to the guys that flew the airplanes through from about 1982 to the end of the program, the digital was so much more sensitive than the, than the analog, so the spikes were able to make very minute adjustments to basically keep the airplane under control. Is that a little
1: bit like the modern aircraft, the fly-by-wire system? Exactly.
0: Okay. Exactly.
1: Uh, look, one, one of the things I found... Just I, I was laughing out loud reading about it. Was there's no real defensive measures for this aircraft other than go faster. I mean that that's that's it's when you get shot at you speed up and try to outrun it. I, I to me that that's just I mean, wonderful. I mean I think that's just well go faster. You figure because <clears throat> we had a couple
0: hundred missiles fired at us. I never personally had a missile. I had many fighters come up, but you figure they got to try to come up. 80,000 feet and above, it's a stealthy target, it's against a black sky, because they're looking up and the sky's right. black we're traveling at 2100, 2200 miles an hour it's very difficult, and on board the airplane was one of the most sophisticated electronic defensive systems, so in the nose there's, there's a pair of blisters and those were receivers looking forward if they picked up a launch of an air-to-air missile or a surface-to-air missile, we had jammers underneath that were some of the most powerful at the mm-hmm. time. The closest a missile ever came to the airplane was about a mile and a half in trail, and we were—if we were cruising at cruising at 3.2 Mach, 2150—they said you could go to 3.3 if you wanted some additional speed. Most of us normally didn't accelerate because we felt that the airplane. Had enough security as it was. Uh, it, it was just a remarkably difficult, and that's why six presidents use the airplane because they felt, "I'll send you out in harm's way," many times in overflights, because I feel the defensive systems you're going to face are really not going to be a right. problem.
1: If people may be having a hard time with these numbers because they're just extraordinary compared to what we're used to, even flying in a modern passenger aircraft, um, and even considering modern fighter aircraft, these are numbers that are way, way higher. Um, is there a reason, and I know the answer to this, but I want to, you to talk about it, that you don't just shoot cannons or bullets at the SR-71? Most bullets are slower than
0: the SR-71, so if you fired it, it wouldn't uh, wouldn't have much of an effect. Uh, one of the things I think people might be interested is okay, you've sent us out, what do we do in the SR? Well, take a standard sheet of paper and go out and stand beside your car on a sunny day, and I said a sunny day, and I'll fly over at 85,000 feet, and I'm doing 35 miles a minute, I'm 16 miles above you. When I process the film, I will see you holding that sheet of paper. I can identify, our analysts could identify adult males and adult females most of the time. Kids were a little harder. But back in the 70s, when I flew these airplanes, about uh, 70 to 80 percent of the time, I could tell you what kind of a car you were driving. This was the accuracy of the cameras that the presidents and other people, the information they were getting. Um, We also had a radar capability where we could look out uh, over 100 miles. It would be a grainy picture. It It means I couldn't see people, but I could Kind of tell from the size of a radar return was it a car was it a you know an engine was it a a tank type of a thing, we also electronically could p- pick up uh, radars, uh, commercial transmitters, uh, trans regular transmitters, about out to over three hundred miles anywhere around us. Uh, in the uh, in this time period, the SR was your greatest collector per se, and another factor for those of you that have ever listened on television or heard after the fact, if you think about the shape of the space shuttle, the SR-71 body is America's first lifting body. Thirty-five percent of the lift comes off it. The space shuttle has the same general outline that the SR does. Both of them set up a double sonic boom. So when it passes over you, there will be a distinctive boom-boom. Now. It can be destructive at times, like when the speed run was done from London to Los Angeles in an hour in three hours and uh, forty eight minutes. there were about twenty homes in Los Angeles that windows were broken, but everything <laughs> was recorded on the airplane, so the Air Force would very quickly uh, replace and repair uh, those windows per se but sometimes we were tasked over fly heads of state meeting each other and The shock was about 45 seconds behind us. So you could time, because when heads of state meet, let's say it's 11 o'clock, the airplane is on the ground. At 11 o'clock, the door opens. The president or minister of one country comes out of the airplane, walks down the ramp, meets the president or minister of another country, and they'll be there for a couple minutes. So the SR would pass over the top and leave a very distinctive as we called it, the sound of freedom, to (laughs) remind them that they were doing things that were counter to uh, uh, U.S. policy and NATO policy. As I've mentioned in in an interview I did a a couple years ago, the greatest boom that I've been able to determine is in May of 1972, three SR-71s flying out of Okinawa, Japan, crossed simultaneously over Hanoi to send a message to the POWs. This last March, a film has come out that none of us knew about that it really was not only a message to the POWs that we care, but it was a message to the POWs that there were Navy rescue teams off the coast, oh. and if they felt that they could escape and head down the river, they would be greeted. And this was a special message that had gone to Admiral Stockdale yeah. to say, and he opted that he thought it was too dangerous at that time to to do it. I've talked to the POWs. They remember the shock, and they said the guards had never heard anything like that, and some of them actually fled. But i also tell you, the POWs, Bud Day and a couple of others told me with a twinkle in their eye, we appreciated the shockwave, but we really loved the bombs coming off the B-52. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you can only do so much. Um, I want to ask you about piloting this aircraft. I mean, there's very few people on Earth that know what it feels like to fly it over Mach 3 and at 85 to 90,000 feet. Um, What is the view like from up there? I mean, it's almost like you're in space, right?
0: Oh, it is. You can see the curvature of the Earth. You can see almost 350 miles in any direction. Uh, it's spectacular. With the human eye, you can look down, and you can normally see a big semi-truck on a freeway if there's, if there's fair contrast. When I got in the airplane, I was actually a little disappointed because I'd come out of RF-4s, and I figured here's this Kelly Johnson magical airplane that just is, you know, innovation in almost everything. And I got in the cockpit and was an F-4 cockpit because <laughs> Kelly Johnson had the philosophy, if it works, don't mess with it. Right. He like said, "I got bigger problems to deal with." And so the cockpit on a normal control was very much like that era of airplanes, an F4. Then added to it were all the controls you needed to fly supersonically. And one of the, I think, great innovations was in the center. There was a, like a screen, that was probably about. Let's say four and a half inches by four and a half inches, and they filmed your mission in 35 millimeter film, and it advanced at your ground speed and would tell you you have a turn coming up. What's the fuel supposed to be there? What's your divert base? The A12 pilots didn't have this. Mm -hmm. I mean, they were really taking a map and a map board and working from it. For us, and of course, in our in our back seat, our navigators had a much expanded one that had all kinds of camera commands and defensive systems and, and everything else. Right. But it was truly one of, the, um, one of the innovations. And as you say, in the history of this program, 25 years, about, only 85 pilots and about 85 navigators ever flew it operationally. We gave orientation flights, like a, typically one. Uh, to many other people, but those who were actually fully checked out and Mm -hmm. flying it was a a fairly small group. When I was an instructor pilot, you spent about three months going through ground school. You probably had a hundred hours in a simulator, it was the first simulator I'd ever seen that was actually a computer simulator and flew like the airplane. It wasn't a part-task trainer. It would do, we could go down at night if we wanted to practice ourselves. And if we did something wrong, the computer would reward us with our mistakes. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was it was that much of a thinking computer. So now, after three months, the pilot, I'm going to take you into the, the dual control. It's an elevated rear cockpit with flight controls in both. The operational airplanes, there were no flight controls in the back seat. So your first flight is your only subsonic flight. And so we're going to go up the tanker and spend an hour and a half teaching you how to refuel, because refueling this airplane... Well, it could be quite difficult. Although, you know, I can't say enough good about our tankers. In the program, we had over 26,000 refuelings. I'm never aware of any refueling that was missed because tankers weren't there. Mm. These were absolutely superb men and women. That, uh, And we put them in some pretty remote places, north of the Arctic Circle, wow. navigating off the stars, uh, some pretty dire locations, per se. So, We'll start chat at 1.8 Mach in this airplane, 1,800 miles an hour. About was the airplane was fairly docile, and you'd have two flights at um, 1.8 Mach, and then we'd take you up to uh, 3.0. And on your fourth flight, which was a four and a half hour flight, that's two refuelings. And when I was your instructor. For your first two and a half hours you hand flew this airplane. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't, I took the autopilot away from you because I wanted you to show me that if you did lose the autopilot you could handle the airplane. We would not normally fly a mission hand flying it because we wouldn't be able to hold the airplane steady enough for the cameras and the sensors. At the end of the two and a half hours every single one of my students said can I have my autopilot back (laughs) (laughs) because normally you'd fly it. The refueling had to be hand flown. But a lot of the other, particularly the cruise, was, uh, you were on autopilot, per se. And then from there, we would slowly increase the speed, uh, 3.1, 3.15, 3.2. Uh, you'd go from 30-degree bank turns to 45-degree bank turns, which uh, took a little practice. And then we'd take you into the nights. And the nights are really kind of tricky because at 85,000 feet, 90% of the stars we don't see on the Earth. So think about a starry night; that is absolutely covered. Right. Now think about yourself over Kansas, and you got a starry night over overhead, and you got a starry Kansas underneath you. Um, orientation right. was, was a real uh, was a real challenge, and we felt that our night flights were probably some of our most demanding, just to keep ourselves properly oriented, particularly if now if you had an unstart in the airplane because. If it was a severe on start, you literally had a hard time reading the instruments. The airplane was shaking so badly and moving
1: so rapidly. And I'm thinking about the, the life support systems that you're wearing. It's not like you're comfortable up there. You're basically in a space suit. You're in a space suit. Because, I mean, I I, I want to. Can you eject at Mach 3 and 85,000 feet? You can. The, the ejection seat was a wonderful Lockheed, the same
0: one the U 2s use today. It was good from ground zero, no movement to uh, 85,000 feet at the full speed of the airplane. The pressure suit would provide you all the protection. Um, one of the test flights, Bill Weaver, over in New Mexico, the airplane broke up. He actually ejected the backseater, uh, the only fatality we had in the SR program. Uh, we, th- I think, was hit by a piece of the airplane. Mm. But if you ejected or the canopy would come off, the suit would immediately inflate, you would come out, you would be held in the seat, it took you seven to eight minutes, coming down, st- stabilized, at 15,000 feet the seat would determine your 15,000, it would kick you out, a big parachute would open because the suit weighs 45 pounds and another 10 pounds for the helmet, so the, the the chute is big enough so you're going to descend it at about 1,000 feet a minute down to whatever level you're above. Right. But my wife, uh, of course, we did too, uh, but my wife particularly liked. This is the only airplane we never had a fatality. Air Force never had a fatality flying this airplane.
1: When, when you retired from flying SR-71s, you, you went on to work... Uh, with with a program that a lot of people may not know a whole lot about. It's the United States Air Force called the Black World Program. Uh, And you helped to develop some of modern day's most extraordinary aircraft. Can you talk a little bit about that part of your career?
0: Actually, I was still in the Pentagon. I was a lieutenant colonel. And the Black World refers to classified monies for programs that the idea is if the adversary doesn't know about it, until it shows up, they have a very difficult time of countering. In today's world of information, it takes so long to develop a system. Like the F-22, from beginning until it was actually fielded, was pro- over 20 years. So obviously an adversary can develop a lot to try to counter it. Uh, from 1983 to 1985, I was basically the manager for all the Air Force compartment or black world programs. The ones I can acknowledge, the F-117, the stealth fighter, the magnificent stealth bomber, the B-2, and the F-22. The F-22 was originally developed. So these are developed in secret until it gets to a point when they need to be revealed. The proof is, uh, if you talk to any of the Iraqi senior leadership, the only airplane that went downtown, absolutely undetected, during the Desert Storm, was the one seventeen, and the leadership said the only way we knew it was there was something blew up.
1: Right. I mean, I, I, like I said before, I was, I was still a kid, but again, I, I tried to pay attention to all the new aircraft and everything going on. And my first indication of the F one seventeen's existence was in Desert Storm. This, this, this weirdly shaped black aircraft uh, that they said was invisible, and in, in, until, uh, I guess. Until the Serbian War in 99, none one had even been touched, and most people may think that was a lucky shot one way or the other. Uh, and then the B-2, similarly, it got rolled out in a big ceremony, and that was the world's first indication that this was going to be a whole new ball game.
0: There was a big discussion on how we were going to... Like, the U-2, the SR-71, the A-12, and the stealth fighter were all developed at Area 51. Yeah. The decision was made that the B-2 was so large and that we wouldn't gain that much so it would be developed at Edwards Air Force Base. So when it had its rolling out, I think in about 1987, uh, the public saw it. Instead of trying to build uh, the facilities and everything else that would have been required at Area 51.
1: And the last question, you told a story uh, before we started that I think our listeners would love to hear um, about... um, Something that happened relatively recently, although the the event itself that was in celebration of or or in recognition of happened back in 1960, uh, the idea of Francis Gary Powers finally getting some of the recognition that he deserved, and, and you were instrumental. You were a part of allowing his son Francis Gary Powers Jr. Uh, to get up into YouTube, even though Gary Jr. is not an Air Force or CIA. Uh, employee he 's a uh, relatively normal citizen, uh, you know and most of us don 't get a chance to write up in YouTube two and, and but he was you know he 's the son of Gary Powers, and I think that he talk a little bit about this this uh, event gary Powers Jr. is, is truly a re- remarkable young man,
0: and what most people don 't realize he knew nothing about his father because he 's the product of a second marriage, and when his father was tragically killed in a helicopter accident as a traffic helicopter reporter in Los Angeles. When Gary came home, he couldn't understand why all these news people were on his front lawn. And that's when he started the discovery process. And he spent his life learning about his father and learning about the U-2 program. He was one of the co-founders of the Cold War Museum, Mm -hmm. which uh, focuses on the Cold War. It's particularly, uh, I would say, um, vital, if you look at the former Eastern satellites, the Cold War, those 47 years, had dramatic effects on them, much more dramatic than us. Mm -hmm. I mean, the United States had effects, but not to that degree. Um, I helped support. I was one of many that was able to uh, secure for Gary an orientation flight, Uh, but I'll take credit for convincing the leadership in the Air Force that it should be done on the 1st of May, 2000, to celebrate 40 years since his father had been shot down. Um, He was not Gary Powers was not well treated when he came back. There was real questions about why didn't he do this or do that? Yes, he had the uh, cyanide coin with him that he didn't use uh, we didn't when he flew sr we didn 't carry anything like that uh, he didn't get the recognition he needed so at this particular ceremony, there were a number of awards that one from the Air Force, I believe, the Air Medal, and then there was a, a medal from the CIA that was presented to Gary Powers Jr. at Beale Air Force Base, and we had a weekend celebration because his mother was there, and it was really a fine way to toast his uh, his father. Recently, within the last two years, uh, he's also been posthumously uh, awarded the Silver Star for his time in the Euabrianka prison. Uh, as other prisoners like him uh, mm-hmm. served. And that was given to the grandson of Gary Powers, Gary Powers Jr.'s uh, son, per se. Uh, I'm going to divest here ju- divert yeah, just for a it. second because I think the public will, might find it interesting. Uh, I was, just by happenstance, the lucky one that could fly probably the first and only mission out of the United Kingdom into the Middle East. This was for President Carter in 1979, because during the Arab-Israeli War in 1973, the advance party landed in England to be told, you are not welcome here. We're afraid of an oil embargo. So those missions in the SR, the longest in the history of the program, 11 hours and 20 minutes, they were from the east coast of the United States. And that was the photography that President Nixon depended on to understand what was happening in the Arab-Israeli War. Our satellites were not in the right position, they couldn't be moved, so we were really kind of blinded from the, from the space. Now you fast forward, it's 1979, uh, much like today. North and South Yemen and Saudi Arabia are in a fight. Uh, we don't have the information that uh, we need, so President Carter basically directed the SR to, and at this time, for the first time, the United Kingdom said, you can fly from here. Mm-hmm. And so we brought an airplane over. It was supposed to be three missions. It turned out to be one in the end. France would not allow us to overfly, which was not untypical of France. So we had to fly around Portugal and, and Spain and going through the Straits of Gibraltar. It would involve, it was nine hours and 45 minutes, it would involve five refuelings. So there was a set of tankers that came out of England that refueled us off land end. Two sets of tankers that came out of Marone and Seville, they were the first are the second and the fourth, or the fifth refuelings. Two sets of, uh, of uh, full sets of tankers were in Cairo, Cairo West. They would refuel us. The third and the fourth refuelings were over the Red Sea. We used what we called the country's camera. It's a big camera in the nose. It took a picture 72 miles wide. Wow. Each film, the film length was two miles, five inches wide. Uh, In an hour, you could film 100,000 square miles of the surface. So as we flew into the Arabian Peninsula, we had this nose camera on that was just covering a large swath um, for us to come back and uh, and bring it down. But it also highlights, as wonderful as the SR technology was, imagine you're the president. You're monitoring this mission, the only operational mission we ever broke radio silence during the route. And the president and the people around him insisted that after each refueling that we break radio silence and say we're ops normal and we're proceeding. Hmm. Our tankers said would send the same message. This was what was uh, kind of strange about right. it. But we land back in England as we shut down the engines, the cameras, the recorders, all that is downloaded, put on a waiting airplane, flown across the Atlantic, processed here in Washington, D.C., I think the president probably didn't see what we had collected for 24 to 30 hours afterwards. People often ask me, why was the airplane retired in 1990? The Cold War came to an end. They decided they probably didn't need an airplane that could, the world would be more peaceful. We didn't need an airplane like the SR. It was costing $85,000 an hour to operate. When you figure the tankers, the maintenance, and everything else, But the third thing, which isn't often talked about, which I think in the world we live in today is far more significant, we never developed a data link.
1: A real-time intelligence. A real-time
0: intelligence. The U2 from the late uh, 70s had a data link on board. Today, all the collectors, as the information is collected, it comes off. It's distributed to the process. It's distributed to the people who need it. So I think that was probably a larger factor in the retirement of the SR than most people uh, ever want to admit.
1: But retired or not, the fact that we get to now look at it in a museum like Le Bourg-Hazy is, is, is wonderful for me. Uh, and again, to, to reinforce that idea, when you walk into the museum, you're staring at the SR-71, and it is absolutely the most stunning airplane ever ever built. Uh, so, Buzz Carpenter, thank you so much for taking all this time to talk to us here at the International Spy Museum. We really appreciate it. It was my pleasure. Come to the Spy Museum. <laughs> Thank you for listening to SpyCast. Remember, every Tuesday we will post a new podcast, available from both spymuseum.org and iTunes. If you have any questions or comments about SpyCast, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org or leave a comment or review on our iTunes page. You can also follow us on Twitter at IntlSpycast. That's I and TL Spycast. Talk to you next week.